Hello again, it's Tom Calvard here, continuing this podcast series based on the chapters of my book published by Rutledge, Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organisations. This time I'll be talking about Chapter 7, Discourses. This is really a chapter about language and communication and meaning, which is quite a daunting topic, and then you have to apply it to organisations and diversity. Much has been written about the philosophy of language and the politics of language, and it's never straightforward. Just simply acknowledging that we don't always mean what we say and we don't always say what we mean already indicates some of the complexity. And this word discourse is used in a lot of academic research. In research on organisations in the last two to three decades, just like with some of the other chapters of this book, there's been a critical turn. Some researchers have called this a linguistic turn in terms of how we think of the relationship between organisations and language and meaning. But it starts from a position around the power of text and talk, the way people write and speak, and going beyond simply saying that this is a way to share information or describe the way the world is, to actually say this can make our world, make our reality and our sense of meaning what it is. So it's not just exchanging information, it's giving giving organisations their very meaning and the social context in which they occur. And you can broaden this to include symbols and other forms of communication uh, as well, pictures and objects to a, de- to a degree, although often the focus is on speech and text. So I introduce this chapter by talking about discourse and the linguistic turn and the way researchers have linked language, communication, meaning and organisation. If you are a critical discourse researcher or you look at organisations in terms of critical discourses, you're almost looking at triangular links between the way we communicate, the way we think and the way we relate to the society around us and the power relationships around us. And as you can see, looking at the media or our societies and our governments, our policymakers, our leaders, certain ways of communicating embed themselves. They become very meaningful and very powerful and very influential. Whether it's talking about racism or anti-racism or feminism or misogyny or the future of the world economy. And I go on to note how communication unfolds in terms of a diversity of stories and narratives in organisations and how it can be quite difficult to try and, to try and track these. We never quite escape communication as human beings. It's, it's always unfolding around us in conflicting ways. And again, you have these linkages between what we say and what we write and how that affects how we relate to practices in organisations, our relationships and interactions with others, and our place within the wider society and organisational context. Even taking what can initially seem a relatively straightforward example, 
we can start to see the role that communication plays when it labels and categorizes people. So I take in this chapter the example of the older worker. If we were to call somebody an older worker in our language and communication, that might carry a range of economic and other meanings. So it's thinking about the material effects this can have. It's not just words, it's not just language. It's a way of actually carrying things out in practice. So the way we talk about someone being an older worker can have very real consequences, of course, for things like pensions, retirement and redundancy and so on. So communication comes together to organise practices and activities and the way we talk about them makes them seem real and ordered and the way things are, the way things really are. And so from these sorts of recognitions about language and communication, you can think about the way we've talked about people and phenomena across history and you can think about the effects language you've had in organising our world. There's also the limits of language and communication, which is part of the topic as well, I think. The idea that we never quite perfectly capture the way things really are just by communicating about them. There'll always be bits of truth and bits of reality that can never quite be captured by any particular discourse. And so it's quite important, I think, as part of this critical perspective to understand that we maybe only form temporary understandings through communication. So it's quite a puzzling thing, but certainly there are many different ways of talking about diversity. There are diverse ways of talking about diversity, and that's what I spend the rest of the chapter focusing on. So I review a lot of great articles that have looked at diversity discourses across the 20th century and into the 21st. I think you could go further back as well, but just some of the major ways we communicate about diversity. There have been scientific discourses, statistical discourses, political discourses, economic discourses, and as some of this book has focused on in the last 30 years or so, there's been debates around diversity management and how it's implemented in organisations and what that might mean. Often communication falls immediately into, into critical problems because it tries to reduce diversity to a particular form of language or a particular way of talking about it. Some studies have shown that every organisation might have a different way of talking about diversity. Even within a single organisation, there might be diversities, different ways people communicate about diversity. And there are potentially an endless number of these. People can link diversity in their communication to almost anything. Practices, team working, customer service, policies on various issues. And it can enable us to find new things to talk about but it can also constrain us if we start to link diversity too closely to particular topics like organisational aims or skills or HR practices. Even relatively short 
innocuous seeming phrases like valuing diversity can be difficult to put into practice. People may value diversity in lots of different w- ways that may at times appear contradictory or need to be reframed and qualified as we as we work in in diverse teams and deal with people with different work styles, different ways of communicating. The way we talk about gender in our societies can often still privilege masculinity and problematize femininity. Communication doesn't automatically open us up to inclusion in talking about work-family or work-life balance, for example. For every discourse, there may need to be or may indeed be counter-discourses. And so, as part of a, a diverse society or a diverse culture, it's how do we collectively and publicly reflect on diverse language, the recognition of diverse issues and groups in our communications. And more often than not, discourse constrains the diversity of communication. It, it makes our language more regular. It, it, it embeds it in, in repeated patterns. So even in a relatively progressive liberal democracy or European country talking about minority inclusion, there's still risks that we communicate about diversity in a problematic way. We might imply that diversity, for example, is a problem to be solved or that we can categorise it into a series of dimensions that organisations need to focus on. And then we invite people's opinions on how to solve this problem. And really that's only one way of talking about diversity. And it's not itself particularly diverse or imaginative and can even serve to put diverse workers back in their place to exert a sort of power over them. Anti-discrimination discourse for about 40 years has has dominated a lot of the way we communicate about diversity and there have been these overlapping terms equality, diversity and inclusion. And so even being aware of these overlapping terms and the different things that they might signal to academics, practitioners or consultants, we can we can start to look at them with the benefit of hindsight and think about how to maybe break free of just using the same words but not actually using them meaningfully or being able to use them in combination. So we have a kind of responsibility in looking at these different ways of communicating about diversity and thinking about some of their assumptions, the people who are using the discourses and how they connect to other issues, whether these are to do with the business, to do with business interests, to do with legal interests or political interests. I go on with the chapter to talk about different ways of framing diversity and take this idea a bit further that by communicating about diversity in a particular way, you're drawing a frame around a particular way of looking at it. And so when an HR department produces rhetorical language or policies about diversity, the things that it chooses to focus on will inevitably frame the the way diversity is communicated about and the meaning and the emphasis that is placed on things, whether it's to do with groups, 
individuals, the way diversity adds value to an organisation, the way productivity and performance issues are defined, and other practices and initiatives. And we probably shouldn't be surprised that research to find that research shows different occupational groups have profoundly different ways of framing diversity. A trade union may focus on fairness and collectively shared issues. A bureaucratic occupational group may focus on different communicating different issues in diversity. Staff that work in occupational health may use medicinal and health-based discourse to talk about diversity issues. And of course, minorities and majorities themselves will talk about a sense of discrimination, inclusion and exclusion and the way they experience their careers and their cultures that they're working in. So all these interlocking forms of communication in different groups and at different levels of the organisation create ways of sorting through the different meanings and emphases that are placed on diversity. Important distinctions are whether you're talking about individuals, whether you're talking about groups, whether you're talking about laws or things that have to be abided by, or you're talking about voluntary initiatives, policies that need to be followed. These are the sorts of things that arise in communication. Large multinational corporations and culturally diverse teams will have to find ways to communicate diversity, to come to terms with with it and how it affects their work. One of the concerns with the way we communicate about diversity is it it's a bit like fashion. Certain ways of talking about it and writing about it and thinking about it come and go. One fashionable trend giving way to the next, whilst you also get reactions of cynicism or a sense that there's a meaningless imitation going on between organisations and a superficial lack of attention to local conditions. So there's this paradox that companies communicate often a lot about diversity, but only in a way that is is link, linked to the brand of the organisation or some new trendy way that people feel empowered to communicate about it. So there's often a, a struggle going on between different communicative frames of reference. Again, trade unions may want to focus on regulation that affects collective groups within the workforce, whereas the private sector and other autonomous professional groups may prefer to talk about individual career paths and voluntary solutions in how they communicate about workforce diversity. And then you can zoom out and look at political economy, national government, and the way we talk about the socio-political context, whether it's in terms of how well sectors of the economy are performing or government policies that have a neoliberal emphasis or an emphasis on austerity or welfare or something else. Different countries clearly have different histories in terms of how they communicate about diversity, whether it's France or Germany or South Africa, so you can zoom in and out to think about different patterns of communication. In this chapter, I give a few more examples of discourses that I think have been shown in critical research to relate to diversity. 
One example is ambition. Often ambition is talked about in this individualistic masculine way that's not necessarily inclusive uh, of working working styles and uh, and diversity. The idea that people develop themselves as individuals and go on an upward career trajectory um, is, is something that is still quite masculine and associated with someone who would typically be a man working full-time. You also have discourses of meritocracy, that people's successes and failures in workplaces are down to their own efforts and achievements as individuals. And this can be problematic for minorities and majorities alike when they look at whether or not they're being recognised or achieving or progressing in organisations, they may blame themselves or blame each other. People can also focus in their communication on stigma and stigmatisation of identities, that certain employees are somehow good or bad due to some stigmatising criteria, that people's identities are quite fragile and they don't always know how to communicate their needs and interests and values in a straightforward way. One of the most powerful examples of this, I think, is with disability, where an organisation may talk about work and the workplace using what we would call ableist discourse, as if everybody is able-bodied and the expectations of what people should be able to achieve and what the organisation should achieve is based on this assumption of an ideal worker as able-bodied. But as with this idea of resistance, minority employees, in this case disabled employees, can talk back and employ counter-discourse. So they might challenge the idea that they're less productive than able-bodied workers. They might redefine productivity on their own terms or refuse to take individual responsibility for lower productivity as designated in ableist terms by the organisation as a whole. So there's all sorts of contradictions in the way people talk, make decisions and act when they communicate about diversity in organisations. And perhaps unsurprisingly, global and managerialist capitalist interests often struggle to communicate about diversity in any terms beyond demographic categories and business value. But you immediately start to see other contradictory discourses go into motion as people try to draw attention to different ways of communicating. I have a, a, a final main section in this chapter where I, I go in further on communication even looking at some of the words people might use to describe each other or experiences in organisations. People might use masculine or feminist language to describe each other and their experiences. And people may get into many different everyday topics of conversation around family, private life and public life, health and different types of groups of people and individuals that people observe or talk about in the organisation. Post-colonialism emerges here potentially again in terms of the relationship between Euro-American ways of, of talking and communicating and placing emphasis on meaning versus more indigenous worldviews, voices 
and systems of meaning. There's still an incredible Western bias in terms of how we communicate about organisational practices and diversity. The only way to resist this is to to sort of expose these ways of communicating as self-serving to the majority and the status quo. So the people who talk about diversity are the people who are most powerful in the first place and they are the ones who offer to deal with it on their own terms, which is in itself a problematic form of communication. So thinking about non-white and non-Western discourses and how to recenter them in forums of communication. I also talk about metaphors a little bit. So I would say one of the most prevalent metaphors in diversity communication is the glass ceiling. And I talk about Donald Trump's border wall. Uh, that's uh, metaphorical, but also literal and material in terms of how people think about national borders and the diversity around national borders and immigration. Again, there's an idea that the default is that diversity is something that needs to be managed, that has financial implications, rather than potentially alternative metaphors. And people are, I think, getting mixed messages when it comes to communication about diversity. Maybe from different policies, cultures and relationships. We have to navigate multiple competing discourses. I think when organisations make decisions, this is particularly where we see certain patterns of communication come to the fore. People give particular accounts and take up particular positions around how the organisation is going to take decisions, allocate resources, design responsibilities and ideas of moving towards particular goals. And the question is how to, or one critical question is, how to engage diverse groups and minorities in dialogue truly high quality two-way communication where there's genuine exchange exchanging of views on equal terms but admittedly that can seem elusive so we need to keep going back communication never really stops trying to set up conditions for some sort of diversity breakthrough and that may feel difficult to to both all parties involved in the communication, particularly people who favour single meanings or easy consensus. So I start to move towards the end of this chapter talking about the future of diversity, language and communication. I think people will continue to debate about how to position language in organisations. We all know that communication can be tricky and there's also the idea of how we relate communication to everything else. And some of this I'll deal with in other chapters later in this series. But, for example, the idea that 
People don't just talk and write things down. They exist in buildings and spaces. And so there's all this other stuff surrounding or tangled up with language and communication. And again, the limits of what language and communication can actually achieve. We're always playing catch up, never quite managing to say entirely what we mean or mean entirely what we're saying. Something's always left out of of any particular discourse or communication and we're pulling our emphasis in different directions. The work is ongoing, always somehow imperfect and incomplete. But this needn't be too troubling if we think of communication as the starting point for organisation. The problem has been that often people have thought about this the other way around, that organisations are already there and they produce communication in some sort of fixed way. But actually, many are arguing in critical work on organisations that communication is always the starting point for organisation. You could say that it really is all that organisations are. They're systems of communication. I think at a more practical level, the way we do diversity research and diversity practice can still become more and more language sensitive. And I mean this literally in terms of different spoken and written languages. So in multinational corporations, there may be some languages that dominate more than others, particularly Euro-American forms of language. But diverse employees and researchers are likely to continue to be able to mix and adjust language use and maybe to translate you know, across linguistic barriers there may be a possibility of building linguistic bridges in and across organisations and diversity as well. And we will continue to see, I think, new forms of discourse that emerge in how we talk about feminism, how we talk about the environment and how we dis- deconstruct different ways of talking about diversity, equality and inclusion and reveal contradictions or interruptions and hesitations where people find it difficult to decide what exactly they're arguing about or what exactly they mean. The language of capitalism is likely to continue to dominate a lot of global discourse. One concept that seems particularly powerful is the idea of branding and reputation, the sort of foundation of public relations communication. And that can feed right down into organisations, but also individuals, and just how we think about diversity as a commodity, something to be bought and sold, which can be very uncomfortable, but nevertheless pervasive in how we communicate. And this in turn connects to neoliberal issues, how government policies think about diversity and communicate about it, how we think about diversity in terms of market forces, political discourse and affiliations, and the idea of contributing to economies. So I conclude by um, noting that you could conclude our organisations and societies perhaps have too much communication or that they're saturated with some of the wrong forms of communication. Ones that are oppressive and contradictory and 
do not do well at representing minority interests and experiences. Like many critical perspectives, communication is is sort of inescapable. We're all implicated in it and we have to kind of turn the lens quite painfully on ourselves at times to admit the privileged and limited nature of language in certain situations. But I think in that very critical realisation, we can take up or find opportunities to take up ethical and political responsibilities where majorities or powerful groups are able to listen and give voice to and take up dialogues with a more inclusive set of 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 communication partners and i think it's going to be continue to be challenging for people to research communication because there are so many different diversity discourses and we can't always be sure that we've identified the most powerful ones in the most appropriate ways but what we do know I think it's fairly safe to say, is that often there are powerful narratives that hold sway, majority narratives, and that corporations and organisations often appropriate these and imitate them. But just being more aware of this, I think one simple step everybody can take is to, to try and write and speak and read and listen and communicate in diverse ways. If we find ourselves communicating in ways that only relate to the economy or only relate to scientific objectivity we're not really communicating in very diverse ways in very inclusive ways and just being wary of the rhetoric all around us in organizational communication that communication can be persuasive but it also can be reductive and go unchallenged in terms of how people assume diversity is valuable in a certain way or is manageable or falls within a certain remit and I finish although some of these issues are beyond the scope of a single chapter just by acknowledging that in the 21st century new forms of media and message format have come along chief among this is social media of course with many multi-directional communications occurring on social media platforms, but also a lot of concerns relevant to how we communicate about diversity in and around organisations. The ideology that is spread through communications in new ways across technological systems, the way data and communication is designed and shared. And you add to this the political climate of post-truth and alternative facts ideas and it can look pretty pretty challenging. I think we have people now communicating about how to balance freedom of speech against concerns about hate speech, political correctness against harmful, ignorant forms of speech. So we're going to continue to have diverse communications, but it means we need to look at tracing these communications to the kind of organisational realities they, they, they give rise to. And so I finish by talking about this idea to seek out different forms of communication, engage them in dialogue, and at times try to deconstruct them. And don't just look at what's being 
explicitly communicated. Mm. Look at the implied mm. meaning and also what is not said, what is maybe being left out from any given discourse or form of communication. So that's it for this episode and chapter. And next time I'll be back talking about chapter eight, which is about multiculturalism. So thanks for listening. Uh, and I hope you've been enjoying this podcast series. And I'll be back with more episodes covering later chapters in the book. Thanks a lot.